listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Hello. 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 You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, the 4th of March to the 8th of March. This week was a bit crazy because Jeff Sparrow was away yes. at the Adelaide Writers Festival. Good on him. Uh, so we had Daniel Burt filling in for us and also it was International Women's Day so Phoebe Squared came in and joined us on Friday. What a treat. It was a real treat. It yeah. Was a cracker. It was fun. Heaps of fun. Heaps of fun. We did kick off the week though talking uh, to Kasim Eid about his book My Country, a Syrian memoir. It's a really extraordinary conversation we had with him. He is uh, has uh, really big stories to tell mm. about Syria and they really kind of hit home quite hard. Um, yeah. It was a really yeah, beautiful, beautiful interview. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, on a light note, it was International Women's Day, so we thought we'd have a little bit of a chat about the first time we got our periods, I think. Woo! Got to talk about our periods. <laughs> uh, speaking of really great interviews, though, we also got to talk to Tamara Simmons, who was a producer of the documentary series Surviving R. Kelly, and also uh, chatted to Maya Newell, who was one of the co-authors for a new children's book called Wrestle and... The always wonderful Laura Dunneman was in for Friday Funny Buggers, giving her her top ten list of women. In, most influential women in, in her life. It may or may not involve a some, astronaut in an astronaut's nappy. Some really wrong decisions in there. Three. Triple. You're on Triple R. And the civil war in Syria is soon approaching its eighth year, with recent figures showing many millions displaced. One of those is Qassam Eid, who survived the 2013 chemical weapons attack on the area of Ghouta. He joined the Free Syrian Army to fight the forces of Bashar al-Assad and is now living as a refugee in Germany. He's in Australia to talk about his memoir, My Country, which we'll be discussing at the Wheeler Centre tonight. Qassam, welcome to Breakfasters. Uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for having me. Our absolute pleasure. Um, to jump right into it, what was it about you and your family's life prior to the Arab Spring in 2011 that made you so desperate for change? Um, I'm originally from Palestine. Uh, my father and my grandfather, they were all kicked out in 1948. Um, I was born in Syria as a refugee, Palestinian refugee. Uh, in a town uh, called Maudamiya. Uh, it's considered uh, the in, uh, western entrance of Damascus. Um, Maudamiya was like a very small town with a lot of beautiful olive trees and a lot of nice people. Um, life in Syria before the revolution was very simple yet complicated. Um, simple because, you know, uh, people are very... They're just like very nice people. Like I wish, like things didn't get that bad. But um, by the time we got to um, the revolution, like life in Syria, when I say complicated, whenever you think about trying to do anything without government approval, that's when you start getting into trouble. Uh, the Assad regime had been ruling Syria with iron and fire since the 70s. Hafez al-Assad, uh, Bashar's father, the current president's uh, father, took uh, uh, the rule of Syria with a military coup in the 1970. 
and ever since he established uh, a military or police state where you're not allowed to think, do anything without the government approval. Um, they uh, oppressed people, they used uh, their intelligence branches to keep everyone under control. In 1982, there was uh, a small uprising uh, in the middle of Syria in a city called Hama. And uh, Hafez al-Assad and his brother uh, committed a very uh, horrifying massacre in 1982, killing more than 50,000 people, displacing hundreds of thousands and detaining and torturing to death uh, thousands and thousands of people. They raped thousands of women and which uh, led uh, hundreds of thousands of people to actually leave Syria in the 80s. I don't know, uh, in Melbourne, I heard there's a, a, a big Syrian community as well. Mm. And I believe most of them came to Australia in the 80s because of that reason. Um, by the time we got to 2011, there was the Arab Spring. I was uh, studying English in the University of Homs. Uh, I was also uh, studying and uh, working in Four Seasons Damascus Hotel. I was just, you know, trying to get the best out of life in, in Syria. To be honest, before the revolution, we were all, as young people, we were all dreaming about leaving Syria. We all wanted to look for a better country where we can uh, have uh, an equal chances in education, to find a good job. So whenever anyone got a chance to actually leave, we used to like literally celebrate him or wish him all the best. But when the revolution started, our dreams changed. We wanted to stay in Syria. We wanted to make Syria a better place for us to live in. We have everything that we need to have a successful country. We have a lot of national resources. Uh, Syria, um, like uh, we're near the Mediterranean, we are considered a very a good country. Um, but because of bad government, we didn't have any kind of chance of a good life. And uh, when Bashar al-Assad took over from his father, there was some hope from the young generation, was there not? Yeah, yes. I was one of those... Uh, people who used to actually have this foolish hope that Bashar might actually be better than his father. The fact that he uh, was living in London, he was studying uh, in medical school in London, uh, made us all believe that he got the Western values of democracy and we were hoping that he will uh, translate his um, experience in the UK into Syria. He was literally 35 years old when uh, his father passed away and uh, Parliament uh, changed the Constitution in less than five minutes to change the age of uh, president from 40 years old to 35 years old to match his age. We were hoping that uh, this young uh, president will feel especially... Uh, connected to us, the young generation, who are looking forward, like I said, to have a good future in Syria. But with time passing by, uh, we discovered that our dreams are nothing but dreams. Uh, he used practically the same tactics like his father. 
he opened up the economy, but he opened up the economy for his cousins. Uh, they uh, literally controlled each and everything in Syria. For example, there's a very famous uh, businessman. His name is Rami Makhlouf. It's literally Bashar's cousin. So that guy, out of nowhere, after Bashar became president, became a billionaire. They opened two uh, cell phone companies, both owned by Rami Makhlouf. All the new banks owned by Rami Makhlouf. All the new hotels owned by Rami Makhlouf. Mm. Anything you can think of owned by the same guy. And even when I was working in the Four Seasons Hotel, um, I got the chance to see, you know, all the elites in Syria because it was the fanciest hotel in Syria. So all the meetings, the business meetings sometimes took place, especially with foreign investors in Four Seasons. And I used to watch how other businessmen were trying to get the contracts, for example, to build uh, a, new ho- uh, a new hotel or uh, open up a new bank. Everyone will go and try to get the contract. Out of nowhere, Rami Makhlouf will show up in his fancy BMW and his fancy uh, guards. He will go inside for five minutes, sign the contract, and leave. That was as simple as that. And in terms of corruption and entitlement, you attended school with some of Assad's relatives. Is that correct? Yes, I did. (laughs) And believe it or not, I swear to God... um, some of them used to, like I was in like high school, some of them used to go to the class, I'm talking about 14, 15 years old, uh, walking to the class with a gun on his, and like he's like carrying a gun and walking inside. So you can just imagine uh, how teachers were like afraid, like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> imagine that. You know, like uh, you're teaching a kid who can just simply pull up the gun and shoot you. It was as simple as that. And 15-year-olds can be quite volatile. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, when the revolution takes place, what effect does that have on your family? Um, Like, just like to be clear and honest with everyone, you know, as a Palestinian, as uh, like the Arab and Muslim dictators always used Palestine as an excuse to oppress their people. They used... Uh, Palestine to tell uh, their people that we're gonna fight Israel and send Palestinians back. That's why we declare we have the emergency protocol. And that's why we don't have a lot of freedoms. That's why we spend all the money on the military, on the intelligence. While in fact, they are doing all of that just to keep us, the people, under control, to keep us oppressed. So when the revolution started, I felt obligated. I felt responsible as a Palestinian to participate and take action against this government that's been using us for more than four decades to kill, rape, torture thousands and thousands of people. So when uh, the revolution started, like, uh, for example, our town, Maudamiya, used to have 80,000 people as population. After a year, of the revolution from 2011 until 2012, we had 15,000 people remaining in Syria. So out of 80,000, only 15,000 people remained. Most people here uh, or around the world, they heard about the refugee crisis in around 2014, 2015. Mm. 
uh, that was uh, when the big refugee wave uh, happened. But people were leaving their houses a long time before that because of the arrests, because of the torture, because of using rape as a weapon of war, and especially in conservative Muslim country like Syria, you know, using rape was perhaps one of the ugliest, the deadliest, like the most horrifying things that the regime did. And your life changed forever, you say, on the uh, 21st of August 2013. Um, in, in In what trajectory did it take on that day? So, when, uh, since the revolution started in 2011, we were just peacefully demonstrating for more than nine months. More than 100,000 people got killed. We asked for international protection. No one showed up. I just want to explain to people that, God forbid, imagine that the people that you love, your friend, your wife, your daughter, your whatever, get humiliated, get raped in front of you by the police, by the military. There's no one, you you can't go to the police and ask the police to help you while they're doing it. So we asked the international community to jump in and try to protect us while we were peacefully demonstrating, asking for change, asking for free elections, asking for equal chances. We were not asking for Ferraris and and, uh, whatever. (laughs) We were just asking for simple human rights. The regime kept using a lot of firepower, uh, car bombs. For example, our town, the regime sent more than 13 car bombs for a very small town like ours. One of them exploded just uh, across the street from our house. You know, uh, by the time we got to 2013, uh, the government, the Syrian government, uh, placed our town and dozens of other rebel towns under siege. They cut off power, they cut off uh, uh, the water pipes, they cut off uh, the internet, almost everything. They put us under siege, they didn't let anyone in, anyone out, and they literally started bombing the shit out of us with everything they had, with tanks, with airplanes, with everything. So the international community, led by President Obama back then, the only red line they drew for Assad was not to use chemical weapons. But in August 21st, 2013, while I was in uh, Maadamiya under siege, we spent the night, I remember that night, me and my friends, uh, we were just looking for food, we were looking for something to eat, because we were reduced to literally eating grass and olives. That's all what we had left. So um, on that day, the regime used uh, sarin gas to attack us in Maadamiya, and also to attack dozens of uh, other uh, towns in uh, eastern Ghouta, in Duma and other places. So uh, I always describe that day as Judgment Day. I woke up on the sound of alarms coming from Damascus. Seconds later, missiles hit the ground. I was trying to figure out what's happening. Within seconds, I lost my ability to breathe. Uh, my chest was set on fire, my eyes were burning, I wasn't able to scream, to breathe, to do anything. Uh, I just tried to beat my chest, hoping that I can breathe again. And after several attempts, I managed to take my first breath. 
I started screaming, telling people it might be a chemical attack. My friends started waking up all suffocating. Within seconds, all the neighbors around me were screaming and yelling. Our neighbor showed up with her kids. They were both suffocating and she was begging us to help. We went downstairs and like I said, it was judgment day. You know, when Quran or Bible or Taurat, we hear stories about judgment day, how people will be confused, how people will be terrified not knowing what's happening. That was the closest thing I can describe that day with because when I got to the street, I saw dozens of people running, falling on the ground, suffocating without seeing a single drop of blood, without knowing what's happening, without knowing if this is real or not. It was very early in the morning, around 5.30 a.m. perhaps. And but within seconds, like I said, everybody was on complete terror, complete confusion. I saw a kid who was suffocating and no one was around him. I went there and I've seen a lot of shit, you know. I've seen a lot of horrible things that I really hope no one will ever see. I've seen people who got bombed, people who starved, people who really suffered. But the look on that little boy's face is perhaps one of the most terrifying things that I've ever seen. I just couldn't understand how could anybody do that to a human being? How can kids choke to death by their own government? I tried to help the boy. I tried to take him to the field hospital with the help of my friends. We got to the hospital and by the time I got there, I lost my conscious. Um, my friends took me downstairs. I was suffocating myself. Uh, my heart stopped. The doctors who... Um, we only had literally four doctors. Uh, two of them were actually dentists. Uh, and three others who were still studying in medical school. The regime bombed all the hospitals, so we were using a basement in a building as a field hospital. So there was more than 600, 700 people who got exposed with chemical uh, weapons in our town. In other towns, there was more than 4,000 people. So in our town, those four or five doctors were trying to deal with a large-scale sarin massacre with almost zero medical equipment. So they checked my pulse. I had no pulse. They thought I was dead. They put me among the deceased. Minutes later, my friends show up, and they noticed I was still moving. They called the doctors. The doctors gave me atropin. They washed my body and gave me CPR. I woke up. My friends took me upstairs. I was literally naked, just wearing my boxers, covered with water, and suddenly the regime started bombing the shit out of us. They sent the airplanes. They sent their special forces wearing chemical uh, protection gear, like masks and gloves and all of that. I remember standing in the middle of the street, looking in the sky, seeing the airplanes bombing, looking on the ground. People are running. I was trying to figure out what's happening. Then my friends uh, came and uh, they started talking to me. 
And they told me the regime is invading. They're sending their elite troops, their special forces, trying to invade. What people don't understand, perhaps, that it was a part of a military operation. Gassing our town and the other towns in eastern Wuta was part of a military operation to control those areas because, like I said, we're considered the western and eastern entrances of Damascus. It was all under rebel-controlled area. And that was the very first time in my life that I actually fought. Mm. It's, it's, it's kind of uncom- incomprehensible for people, I guess, that were born in Australia to understand what you've just said and kind of take in the gravity of that. Um, I guess since the fight we've heard recently that it looks like Assad is, is going to be back in power in Syria. and the Arab, Yeah, and the Arab states are re-engaging with him. Yes. What is your hope? for Syria, for the future of Syria, and how would you like the international, um, I guess, for everyone to respond? Well, um, Assad is winning. He practically won mm. the war. Like, uh, I'm not going to lie and say whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been asking for help for a very long time. Nobody showed up. I said before, since we were demonstrating, you can anybody who actually wants to know what's really happening... You can see for yourself, we were live streaming those protests. We were always, me, like, uh, uh, I learned English from reading Reader's Digest magazine when I was like six years old. My father used to literally smuggle them, smuggle them because it was forbidden, just like anything else was forbidden. Anything that will give you another perspective about life in Syria was forbidden. So I grew up reading those crazy beautiful stories about america about europe about whatever dreaming that there's actually people on the other side of the world that were actually living a happy life when the revolution started i was I used to always tell my friends don't worry someone will show up they will help us maybe america maybe whatever nobody did now um to be even more honest like i said before Arab and Muslim dictators always use Palestine as an excuse to oppress their people. Uh, some of them may have, uh, you know, sent some aid or whatever, but nobody showed up for our help. And now, like you said, everybody's run, running back to Assad. They want to reestablish uh, a relationship with him because nobody wanted us to win. If the revolution in Syria was successful, if we managed to have free elections and a democracy or anything like that, we would have endangered all the Arab monarchies and the other dictatorship, the Arab dictatorships around us. And nobody wanted that to happen. So I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I spent the past five years of my life since I left Syria in 2014. I went to America. I went to the United Nations. I testified in front of the Security Council about the war crimes. I went to the White House, to the Congress, to the Senate. I've written dozens of op-eds, essays in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. I was on 60 Minutes. I was all over the place begging people to help us. Nobody did. And I don't think anybody will, to be very honest with you. We cannot keep asking people to help us before we can help ourselves. And the very first thing we should do is just to accept the fact that we live in a world where 
uh, fancy words like democracy and human rights it is only for uh, you know only for some people not for all people in Europe perhaps in Australia in America you know more than 70% of people around the world they live under uh, poverty and uh, uh, with almost uh, no human rights or whatever simple human rights only people who live in democracies are privileged to have uh, human rights and have a good chance of life uh, my hope for the future at least for now is to bring the war criminals to justice we've been trying for a long time to make efforts to bring the war criminals who committed the massacres, the chemical attacks and everything to court. But again, to be honest, I don't think it will happen soon. And if it, if it did, we won't be able to bring everyone back. So um, I hope that we will reorganize ourselves and learn the lesson and... Things are going to change sooner or later, and it will change for for better, I promise. Kasim, thank you so very much. Uh, your book, My Country, a Syrian Memoir, is available via Bloomsbury, and you, you're speaking... Uh, if you want to hear Kasim's story some more, you'll, uh, you can. there are still tickets available for your appearance tonight at the Wheeler Centre. And uh, I, uh, I hope Australia is turning it on for you in some way. <laughs> They're like, to be honest, like um, I'm really surprised in a very good way. You know, I was just mentioning earlier that uh, unfortunately the hate voices are amplified. People in Australia, all what they, perhaps in general, what they know about Syria or whatever, they just know about the refugees with uh, brown skin and Muslim names who want to come and like steal their jobs or do whatever or there might be potentially ISIS members but people don't understand that refugees love life more than anyone else because if they didn't they wouldn't risk their lives and everything they have to cross oceans and, and deserts and get shot at and treated it like animals on, on borders just at the end so they can have a good chance of life for them and for their uh, for children. I really hope before you judge us, you try to understand who we are and try to understand why did we leave. We didn't just decide one day that we're going to go and like invade Europe or Australia or America <laughs> or spend our summer vacation there. Mm -hmm. We had a bloody fucking dictator who killed more than one million people. We have terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hezbollah, and a shit ton of others who are all there just to kill us. So please excuse us if we are trying to find a place to stay. Fair enough. Well, you're a welcome uh, antidote. Uh, Kasamid, thanks so much for joining Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. Three, triple, ah. Tamara 
Sarah Simmons is a US film producer in Melbourne for the Australian International Documentary Conference to talk about her series Surviving R. Kelly, a six-part documentary detailing sexual abuse allegations against American musical artist R. Kelly, which is currently screening on Foxtel. She'll appear at Acme today for the session A Survivor's Guide to Surviving R. Kelly at 4.15 and tickets are available via the website. But before that, she's here with us now. G'day, Tamara. Good morning. How are you? I'm uh, super terrific. Um, what what made you want to make this documentary? Well, I think that um, there's like the Me Too movement and there, there's different organizations that have been supportive of women uh, regarding sexual abuse. I think the time is best now for that. And there were new allegations that were coming out against R. Kelly. And those allegations were similar to the ones that you see maybe in 2008, 2007, when he was on trial. So to me, it, it's those survivors that were actually silent they wanted to you know they felt that it was the best time for them to actually come out during this time because they felt that they had more support than they had years prior and then it was like a healing for them also by being able to share their story and um even during the time that I was talking to them, I actually told them that, to me, they're heroes because they're actually helping save other women that may be in the same similar situations and men as well. And I said, to me, you're going to be able to share your story and save someone from their situation because a lot of women are in those type of situations and they don't know how to get out or if it's just them that, you know, this is happening to. How would, sorry, just quick, how would they react to that when you told them that they were heroes? Uh, well, of course, you know, they don't look at themselves as heroes mm. and they had, um, you know, their confidence level. You had to kind of like help them understand the importance of who they are. So a lot of them were just kind of like taken back. But then when I put it in retrospective, I said, I'm a mother, I have a daughter myself and you're helping me with my daughter to not possibly be in that same situation. Then they kind of looked like, okay, you know, maybe I do need to speak out now. So I think then they would, you know, kind of go back and forth with themselves about what they should and shouldn't um, say and that sort of thing. But in the end, they were happy. This is far from the first time we've heard these allegations about R. Kelly. Um, in the series, you, you know, you, you talk about the, re- the reporting of the Sun-Times, in particular the music journalist Jim Derigatis, who has been yes. writing about R. Kelly for nearly two decades and mm-hmm. talking about these victims. Why did people finally respond to this documentary having not responded for 20 years? I believe that, you know, because Jim and other journalists have done their due diligence throughout the years, even when people weren't listening, I think now we put it in front of the public's eye and you can't have a blind eye to it anymore. So I believe because we laid out the facts from the early 90s all the way up until now of exactly how this probably happened, um, people could see the history that of the sexual abuse that even R. Kelly himself had been involved with when he was a younger child. As a producer of the documentary, what was a development you uncovered that shocked you the most? Um, Every single survivor's story was so similar, and a lot of them didn't know each other prior to the documentary. So just them, you know, telling me their stories confidentially, I was just, like, taken back at some of the abuse that occurred and, like, the starvation that occurred. And most of those women all went through uh, a certain part where they had to ask for food. And they had to text, could they go to the restroom? Um, the 
I guess the house, the housemate is what they called her. Um, they had to ask if they can go to the restroom. Then they have to receive a response back if they can go to the restroom. And that was just like, these are adult women. Like, I don't understand. But whenever you have the psychologist speaking to like why a survivor would stay in that or a victim would stay in that situation, you kind of understand from their perspective what they were thinking at the time. Yeah, I noticed that in this series you make the choice to intersperse the victim's statements with uh, statements from clinical psychologists to try and explain the behaviour of a predator or how a victim might be thinking. Why did you choose to do that? Did you feel like just the victim statements in and of themselves wouldn't be believable enough for people? Did you feel like people needed to have this kind of psychology explained to them? I think that, um, you know, we often judge people based on, like, what we think we should we would have done. It's just like if you're watching a horror movie and the person runs to the right, well you know the man is to the right or whoever's to the right and you're like why are you running that way so I think we had to like take a step back as producers and understand that these women like what were they thinking during this time like that's why we ask questions to them like you know well what were you wearing what were you thinking that day or can you remember that a certain particular day and we had to like allow the audience and the viewers to get in the mind of the victim as well so they can understand and have sympathy and compassion and not just say oh, you should have just left. You're you're in a grown adult. You should know that that's not right and that th- that man was treating you wrong. But the psychologists speak to their mental state at that time also. This kind of th- that brings you to the idea that is talked about in the series and also something that um, Jim Derogata said a few years ago in an interview was that through reporting on these crimes, he said the saddest fact he's learned is that nobody let- matters less in our society than young black women. Do you think that this series is going to change that? Yes, I believe that it's changing every single day um, because of the support that the women do have and the families have also, um, like the Me Too movement, Tarana Burke, as you can see here in the documentary, she also is an African-American woman and she was there for Bill Cosby, you know, when those allegations came out with those women as well. And those were all white women. So we're basically beating the stereotype that in the black community, you're not supposed to talk about those things. You're supposed to keep it in the family if you do share it. It's not supposed to be shared publicly. And so, you know, I think this documentary shows that it's okay. If something happens to you, you can talk to someone about it. And you shouldn't feel ashamed about it. You shouldn't feel that it's your fault because a lot of these women psychologically thought it was their fault that this was happening. You also have uh, some of R. Kelly's family members and um, his former employees on the record. Was that difficult to get people to come forward from that perspective? Um, It was. The whole process was difficult. I mean, there's even more survivors that we didn't even, uh, we weren't able to have on camera, but they just kind of, you know, told us some facts off camera in the same way with family members. And really, we just asked questions of the family to try and see how R. Kelly was actually raised during that time. Like, where did they live and what what were they doing in the early 90s and how did he become a musician that he is today and that sort of thing. So including the family, it was difficult, but the brothers were very open about it. And as you can see in the documentary, they speak about um, R. Kelly's sexual preference for younger women as well. And that was just information they voluntarily gave to us. Can you speak to the distinction between the artist R. Kelly and the man Robert Kelly? Um, 
I can't speak to the difference because I believe it's all the same person um, in the survivors as well. They believe it's they oh, they say that there's Robert, there's R. Kelly, and then there's the monster. Um, I believe that they can speak to that better than I am. But I look at he's just another man that, you know, can't do this to women. You, you know, you would... The reason R. Kelly was able to do what he did in many ways is because he had people around him who allowed him to do it as well. He's not the only, I guess, perpetrator in some senses. And, and it makes it, you make that really clear in the series. Did you get a feeling for how the people that did work around him that you speak to feel about um, the past two decades and, and whether they felt any guilt about maybe even um, participating by not saying anything? Um, I honestly think that a lot of them knew that it was wrong but didn't have any other type of income so that was their form of income so i think that was kind of held over their head like if i don't do this am i going to lose my job you know i don't know their background i don't know if they were able to apply for other jobs i just know personally if someone was asking me to give young girls their phone number over and over again and it was like a system that was set in place morally i just wouldn't be able to do that you, in in a, in the series, you speak to uh, the music journalist Anne Owens, and she says the story of sexual predation is an in, as an inconvenience in popular music is so old it's been going on for decades. This mm-hmm. idea that the music industry kind of allows these situations to occur. Do you, in doing this series, did you begin to think that there is something specific about the music industry that does allow? things like this to happen or do you think it could happen in any industry um, i i believe it happens in any industry i just believe that r kelly is a subject matter and he's a musician so this documentary highlights on the fact that he's in the music industry but even as ann said this has been going on ha- for 50 years it's just some musicians have not been told on um some survivors and victims haven't came forward but it's i believe it's been happening but i believe that for those that are perpetrators i believe that they look at this documentary in a two-part fold they look at themselves as possibly the subject matter that could be spoke upon you know in in the future because now women are not scared to speak out anymore and they don't care who you are they don't care how much fame you have there's so much support that these women are stronger today than they were you know years ago the documentary states that he denies the allegations since its release has that moved the needle at all or have there been any development since then i believe he denied it years ago so i mean everyone knew he was still going to deny the allegations um and as his attorney said that all these women are lying um and you know they're going back and forth in court so probably some of the survivors will have to appear in court um regarding the allegations that are going against him now uh, I read this uh, little fact somewhere saying that just immediately after this screened in the US, the streaming of R. Kelly's songs doubled on streaming services. Mm-hmm. Have you had much pushback from fans? Like, can you explain what that response might have been about? Well, I think a lot of people, um, when I talked to them, they knew of R. Kelly, but they didn't understand his lyrics. Yeah. And so, as you can see in the documentary, we kind of talk about the songs that mm-hmm. he's talking about, like, I don't want to reference them, but Mm. (laughs) this is the songs that he's talking about. I believe people went and Googled and tried to figure out, like, is that what he really meant with that song or to listen to it? So, I mean, of course, you know, Sony dropped him shortly after that as well because of all the pushback and the celebrities that 
were supportive of the documentary as well um, after it came out, even though they didn't want to speak on camera. But (laughs) (laughs) a lot of them understood after they saw it that there was something that they needed to do. So that that was their call of action. So I believe that the music spiked because of that. But then also his he was dropped from the label because of it. And of course, the promoters uh, cancelled his tour in January to Australia in in the wake of controversy. Do you take some credit for that? (laughs) No, I just thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the survivors. Is that ideally what you would like to see, is that we never have to listen to R. Kelly again? You know, I just, people can choose whatever they want to do. I just want these women, that my main goal was to have these women to be heard and Mm -hmm. to be understood. Even if you don't agree with some of the statements that they made or you don't believe their stories or you don't understand how the parents, quote unquote, would allow their children to go with this man, as people are saying, and lashing out against them, you still have to have some type of compassion because it's a human being at the end of the day that was affected by another you know, a a powerful man. Mm. And, you know, I just hope that people can understand that this could happen to them and their family members and just have an open heart and open ear. Have you been able to speak to many of the women who are in the documentary about how they're feeling now? Yeah. About the jokes? Can you? Can yeah, you well, um, a lot of them we talk every single day. I told them I'm never going anywhere, so they're stuck <laughs> with me. Um, so they became a lot like my family. We even talked about the Michael Jackson documentary. You know, we're in a group text talking about that. But um, since the um, R. Kelly w- did go to jail and things like that, a lot of them, um, they had, you know, mixed emotions and feelings like of okay, justice is going to be served or we finally have been heard and that sort of thing. But at the same time, I feel like some of them probably uh, just want him to get help. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the series, Tamara. Thank you. Uh, Surviving R. Kelly is currently screening on Foxtel. Tamara, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Three. Triple. Ah. We're joined by Maya Newell, the co-author of a new children's book, Wrestle which spawned from her award-winning documentary, Gaby Baby. Maya, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Uh, Can you talk us through the origins of this new uh, picture book, Wrestle? Sure. So um, I suppose really its inception was quite a long time ago, which was when our film, Gaby Baby, kind of blew up all over um, the country when it was banned in New South Wales from being screened by the New South Wales Premier and um, education minister and it meant that like so many more people saw Gaby Baby than they ever would have before. I think it opened in like 10 other cinemas and one of the people that came to that cinema, um, those cinema screenings was uh, Anna McFarlane from Alan and Unwin who came up to me and was like so do you want to like write a picture book and I was so excited about this because you know when I was a kid I grew up with uh, two lesbian mums as well Um, there just weren't books that represented families like mine Um, and maybe the few that did exist were kind of slightly worthy message-driven books where, you know, on the last page their mums kiss and everything's happily ever after or they get married or something um, like that. Um, so, yeah, we were really excited and we decided to make um, Gus's story from Gaby Baby. I don't know if there's anyone who's seen the film, but he's the wrestling obsessed.
obsessed kind of And he's, he was kid. like the poster boy child of that movie as well. Like he, he was, you know, on Actually the poster. The poster. Yeah. 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 <laughs> just for people who don't know, could you just quickly explain what Gaby Baby was about? Sure. So um, it was released in 2015 and it followed the lives of four um, 10 to 12-year-old children who all have um, LGBTIQ parents um, as they're growing up. Um, and navigating the different challenges of, of adolescence. And now, uh, so so Gus in the in the film is all grown up, or he's more grown up than he was. And uh, this, how how true to reality is this the story of this book? Yeah, so we kind of grew on the story from the book, and um, in both the book and the movie, it's kind of about a young boy who is exploring his masculinity, and. He just happens to be doing that in a lesbian-headed household. So the, the book is not so much about a gay family. It just happens to be a gay family. And I think really it touches on what us as a society are being challenged with at the moment and lots of parents, which is how do we raise um, boys with a positive identity? You're kind of like shift in this sort of shifting ground of traditional masculinity um, where parents are kind of like, oh, do I want my boy to be, you know, like violent and mean or, you know, tough or really strong like there are many different ways to be a boy obviously but Gus is going through that in in the book and his mum's like hate wrestling and fighting and they're having this internal family conflict. Uh, Gus helped you write the book and he's you know he's he's studying year 12 at the moment isn't he Uh, and do you know so I guess you would have had a bit of contact with him can you talk to us about what effect um, his life has had since the movie came out and then writing this book. And also talk to us about uh, what's, since we've got marriage equality, um, has that changed the dynamics of his family and stuff? And how's that all, has it affected him in a positive way or has it just kind of been no change? You know, like, I think when I asked this question to Gus just recently, I was like, so, you know, like, how's the film affected your life? And there's something in me that would like to be like, yeah, it's made this huge change and I'm like a really different person and, I, yeah. you know, the, the, the film making huge impact. But I think for Gus, he, he doesn't know life without Gaby Baby. You know, he doesn't know life without being planted on the front cover of the Telegraph or everyone having that intimate access to his story. So he's like, yeah, you know, I whatever. <laughs> You know, he's kind of like in in a very teenage 17-year-old boy kind of stage at the moment. Um, But one really funny story about um, the book's inception is that when we got offered to do it, I went to him and I was like, Gus, you got to be a co-author. Like, it's your life. You've already written half the story. I'm not, you know, Charlotte and I aren't going to do it on our own. And I was like, how cool would it be to have a a story about our families out there? And he was like, oh, my my favourite book growing up was a a book with with two mums in it. Like, there's heaps of them. And I was like... Really? Are they? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, show me. And he ran over to the shelf and he picked up this book from the shelf and it's called Some Dogs Do. And he started reading it with this kind of like nostalgia of his childhood. Like it was his favourite book. He was like, my mum and mum went to the park and he just paused on that word mum and looked at it and his mum said whited out the word dad and replaced <gasps> with, with the word mum and his 17-year-old eyes could see their trickiness. Oh, oh my God. Oh, that's so <laughs> sweet. And um, he just like sort of had this look of crushed oh, disappointment. Oh, world is oh, God, shattered. Apart, yeah. um, and he looked at me and he was like, oh, maybe we should write a book on <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But I, I also think it's worth mentioning that the reason I think he loved that book is because it wasn't a book that was directed at a child with gay parents mm. or about a gay family. It just happened to be there. And I think kids are very sensitive when, you know, a book it assumed its reader's normalcy. Um, and that's kind of what we've gone for with um, Wrestle you know, because of that kind of devastating uh, inception of the book. It's such an interesting story because it's, it's a, such a touching gesture, but I'm anti-defacing books, so I'm really <laughs> torn. <laughs> uh, and, and, yeah, I can't think of many other 17-year-old kids who have co-authored children's books as well. Um, but in answer to your other question, like in a post-marriage equality world and, and what sort of has changed, and I think... Um, regardless of you know there's been so many laws changed since I was a kid you know I wasn't allowed one of my mum's names on my birth certificate we added it when I was 25 which was kind of irrelevant but symbolically nice and then we've had you know adoption equality marriage equality but still there is so many injustices and fears that surround families like ours and I think that um one of the sustaining influences of that is a scarcity of stories. Mm. And I think what we're trying to do with Gaby Baby and what we're trying to do with Wrestle in some way is like speak to this cult need for cultural shift, which I think is the, the larger, bigger monster in the room after we get the laws equal. Yeah. Uh, and that's about the stories the next generation grows up with. It's, you know, how do we hit the hearts and minds of, of general public? Um, and, yeah, I hope the world obviously is a lot more favourable to mm. kids in our families post-marriage well, equality. Well, it is a beautiful book and it's really lovely illustrated as well by Tom Jellett. Is that how I yeah. say Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's just a really fun, fun book. And yeah, like you said, it's not, it's not promoting any kind of ugh, <laughs> weird <laughs> message. It's just a, yeah, fun kids book. Do really. you, just quickly, do you work closely with the illustrator as well? Um, it was a really interesting process. We actually didn't have much contact with the illustrator throughout it. Um, Tom Jell is a very well-renowned children's author in his own right, um, and I think because we were relatively unknown anyone's making a children's <laughs> book, they paired us together and it was a really wonderful marriage. Um, but, yeah, we didn't get to talk to him much at all and I've I learnt so much about the value of pictures. Like, it really is more than 50% of the writing. We were just removing words here and there once we got the pictures in. Yeah, because they tell a story for they you. They tell so much of pictures. And one of the nice things that I'm really proud of in the book is it is one of the first representations of the Mardi Gras parade in a kid's book. Yeah. And, um, you know, I suppose even... So I'm 30 and when we started walking, you know, on my mum's shoulders, there really weren't that many kids in Mardi Gras. Like, it was a pretty adult... Um, parade and now it is so taken over by families and parents and and kids Um, and I hope you know the book represents that shift in tide. Um, Yeah it's almost like it's gone from you know your heavily protested kind of march into it now it's a it's a celebration. Or gay Christmas I think. Is that what he says in the book or something? Yeah yeah. that's what it is for for lots of kids they're like oh Christmas Mardi Gras. (laughs) Gus still into wrestling or has he grown out of it? Um, Actually he has taken over he he does a aikido like a martial art, right, okay. and he's very, he's oh, wow. like a black belt. He's like he's like wow. really good at it. So he really honed that childhood obsession into a, a skill that will last him a long There's the time. second book. Uh, so the launch of Wrestle is tonight at Hairs and Hyenas in Fitzroy. 
Yeah, we're so excited and um, the lovely Jason Ball will be there to um, read the book and it's also co-partnered with Rainbow Families um, Council here in, in Melbourne. So if there's any kids out there or, you know, any families that want to come down and have a reading and see the book. Brilliant. So that's Wrestle yeah. through Alan and Unwin. Uh, Maya, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Do you want to talk about the first time you got your period? <laughs> do I? Do I ever? Come on, we never get to do it. Let's talk I about know, but it. funny stories. Can I, can I just say, it is it is funny. And mm. if any of you are sitting there kind of rolling your eyeballs, go, oh, look, once upon a time that was also me. It's just like... Mm. But we don't talk about it enough. It's got to, you've got to stop stigmatising and tabooing the hell out of my bloody... Exactly, your bloody, Menzies. Your bloody... <laughs> Get it? Yes. Your bloody yes. blood. Your bloody blood. Because uh, when I got... I, I, had, I didn't know. And also when I was growing up... Wait a minute. Back up the truck. <laughs> you just said, but it was like a an oxymoron. You got it, but you didn't know. I didn't know that I had it. Did you think you were dying? Oh. No, it's. You remember your first time. It's not. Oh mm. yeah. I just thought similar. I similar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because growing up, I remember I had three older sisters, and I must have walked in on one of the, having a conversation with my mum about it. And I happened to come in, and I remember saying, "What? You don't bleed once a month? <laughs> you bleed? <laughs> Shut up!" <laughs> but I was, you know, I was young, and I said, "Well, you shut up. You don't bleed every month." And my mum, uh, you know, in a pain, obviously went, "You're too young to know about this." Oh, just yeah. went classic Catholic. Oh, mate, just went yes. Yes, we do. Yes, I do. And she goes, what do you think? Look, I'm... over there. <laughs> but, <laughs> but just went. Just when went... a man loves a woman, bye. <laughs> Birds and bees. <laughs> so she says, yes, I do. Why do you think I've got this Band-Aid on my finger? Wait a minute. So... What is it with you and fingers? I know. I wish my mum runs in the family. We need a finger cam for you so people can see how often we you don't. use them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say. But mum was like, yeah, had a Band-Aid on her finger and was like, yeah, that's... So for the rest of, you know, my Your life, life <laughs> close to, for many years, today. I thought that getting... Like I was waiting till I was old enough to get like the stigmata. Like I just thought <laughs> there would oh. be somewhere on my body that would just start bleeding and then I'd have to put a Band-Aid on it and that would be it. That's kind you of could have happened. had a bowler mm. and just thought... This is normal. Exactly. (laughs) I'm bleeding out of my eyes, Mum. Finally, it's happened. (laughs) The big day's arrived. Anyway, so when it came around, you know, I didn't realise. And then, but, you know, here we are. I'm getting them and it's great. You're okay. My yeah. mum, my mum uh, came came into my room and it was like just embarrassing. It's like, oh. oh, what is she going to talk to me about? <laughs> and I will use it was actually a very sanitary conversation. I mean, like it was clean and dry, not, yes. not you know about I mean? sanitary products. No, well, in the end, that's what it was about. But she came in with a brown paper bag. Oh God! And uh, <laughs> Heather. My my um uh, my amazing mother, mm. very c- 
concise. Was this before or after? Is this no, this was before I had. Mm. So it was like the talk. Right. So all I'd seen really, it wasn't something that was discussed in the home, no. in, in our home, but I, all I'd seen is one of those bloody awful, um, you know, films that they drag all the girls into another room to go and watch and all you remember is the picture of the ovaries (laughs) (laughs) going, that's inside me, what? (laughs) It looks like a squished butterfly. Yeah, none of it made sense. It's just like, just get to the harsh reality of what's happening. I'm going to bleed every month but I'm not dying. That's what I wanted to know. So my mum came in and said, and so the brown paper bag was essentially his little little gift something something I made up (laughs) for you and um just in case it happens I was like yeah give me that and uh kicked her out of my room and uh anyway next minute I'm at my nana's so uh you didn't take your paper bag with you to nana's no you saw that coming didn't you Mm. Um, but I, so I called my mum on the telephone back then. The landline is all we had. Yes. Um, and I said to mum, could you, when are you coming down? And she said, oh, I'll be down on the way. Uh, can you come down now? <laughs> so my mum, we lived in Epping. My nana was in Frank- Frankston. And I said, no, can, she said, well, I can't. I'm like, what's the problem? And I said, you know that, you know that brown paper bag you gave me? And she was like, what? And I was like, oh, for the love of Pete, if there's one time in your life you've got to work with me here, Heather, this is, time is now. But this is the thing. This is why I was saying, you know, we should be just talking about it loose. And a lot of people are now, obviously. Mm. But here, I'm at my Nana's house. As it happens, my Nana's had a few periods in her life. She probably would have known what I was talking about and sorted me out. But I was so mortified mm. and I'm trying to just get my mum you know, with the old nudge, nudge, wink, wink, tap of the nose on it. Get the brown... How many brown paper bags have you given me, woman? (laughs) So I said, you know, the brown paper bag. And she's like, I I don't... The old... Fiona, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Stop calling me. (laughs) So she ended up... And then the penny dropped and she said, um, you know, about talking to my nana about it and... You know, sorting it out that way. Was, so, Nana, was Nana good about oh, it? Oh, I put my mum straight on the phone oh. to my Nana. I was like, I don't want to talk about it. And while we're at it, what are these hairs growing under my arms? <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible. I was supposed to be having a nice school holiday. It's like, geez. <sighs> so talk, you know, we should be talking about it. It shouldn't be so t- taboo. We mm. should. But people are handling it a lot better now. So, for instance, you know, one of my daughters, guy came up, tapped her on the shoulder and he said... Um, he passed her his jacket. Yeah. Oh. And oh. said there'd been a bit of bit of leakage if she wanted to borrow his jacket. It's oh, very lovely. So she could go and sort herself out. Yeah, it's my heart. I know, but beautiful, right? Yes. So they're not all like back what, in my day. It was tell like us oh, your... I can see your surfboard. <laughs> what surfboard? <laughs> I remember that. Or the the horrid pool. I can see pool your time. surfboard. Oh, don't make me get in the water. And the teacher would go on and on, ah. and you have to get in the water. It's like, look, <laughs> surfs up. Are there any sharks? <laughs> it's probably not a good idea for me to get in today. Uh, on my twelfth birthday. Oh. On your actual on my birth- actual twelfth birthday. <gasps> That's incredible. And I'd been crying all day, sporadically. Oh. I don't like birthdays as it is. Geraldine knows well. <laughs> they stress me out. But I've been crying all day, which makes sense to me now because yes. that's all I do now oh. when I have my period is cry. And I, yeah, I've been crying all day. It was a bit crazy. 
and then uh, but didn't know, wasn't really sure what was happening, to be yeah. honest. Wasn't entirely yeah. sure what was happening what was happening. Did, what talk did you have about it? Uh, Mum was very good with these things, but I was embarrassed by her being... Oh, yes. So yeah, Catholic, yeah. let's not talk about anything other than the, the basic mechanics of life, mm. uh, but at the same time had indicated that, this might happen in my life, but I just didn't want to. I didn't want. You know, I don't want. Yeah, I don't, don't want you to talk at me. Yeah. But even worse than that was when. So when I said to her, "Do you think? What do you think is going on here?" She said, "I'm not quite sure." <gasps> oh. And I went, "Okay, well now I'm dying on my twelfth birthday." That's what I thought. And then when we all, we worked it all out eventually over a couple of days, and then she came home with this miniature bottle of champagne, like this tiny little miniature bottle of champagne. And put it in a the baby fridge, sham. a baby sham, put it in the fridge and said, oh, we're having, it's a little celebration for you. Oh. But I was like, great, you and I will have it later. Stop talking about this. And then the worst thing was she called me downstairs <laughs> and then Dad was standing in the kitchen oh. with a little bottle of champagne in and his hand. And a straw. And he Dad. goes, and he goes, <laughs> and he goes, Sarah, uh, oh, dear. your mum, uh <laughs> Your mum told me you became you became. You, oh no, he didn't you, say you it. You became a woman. Jeez, oh. I hope you've got urge overkills, girl. You'll be a woman oh, soon. Pick it up. Free triple R. Never do that again. Ever. Wow, it was beautiful. Oh. <laughs> Welcome, Laura Dunneman. Welcome to Friday Funny Buggers. So nice to see you guys. So nice to have Fee in the house as well. So nice to see you, like, in real life. Well, I've never IRL, seen babe. you before <laughs> no. until now, so this is a new experience. I apologise. You don't need to apologise <laughs> ever. Um, I was going to make my um, classic old, very tired joke about Jeff not being here so Sarah gets a reprieve from her intense crush. I don't know if you know this, but... Uh, the um, sexual tension in the room. a lot of sexual oh, tension no. in the room when Jeff is mm. here and it's just nice for Sarah to have a break mm. from that. Yeah. I was going to talk it's about nice that. It's nice for me to have a break from that. <laughs> I think Sarah's... Well. It's, I know because it really mm. takes over the whole show. It does. So it I does. think it for everyone's... Room. For everyone's... Um, I was, yeah, I was going to mention it, but I think Sarah has suffered enough this morning from having to tell her period story. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dono. Thank you very much. Happy International Women's Day. Thank you. Too, mate. Yeah, how could I not talk about International Women's Day when I'm coming in mm. on such a day? <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned before that I might talk about the Royals because I am the Triple R Royal correspondent. Yes, you are. I was going to talk about the Royals, but then I thought. It's just going to take over and there's too much content there because there's a lot of royal women that I could talk about on International Women's Day and I can't really name my favourite, <coughs> Princess Anne. Um, <laughs> but I decided I'm going to go for a classic um, top ten, um, oh. top ten list and I'm going to go through my top ten international women. Okay. Oh. Yeah, so Fun. I've had a really good think about it. These are the women that have shaped my life that I look to for guidance mm -hmm. and the women that have really helped me to figure out my identity as as a woman I'm as well. I'm really looking forward to this list. <laughs> I, yeah, well, I've put a lot of thought into it. <laughs> uh, 
11.30 last night. (laughs) (laughs) If I had, if I asked you guys, what's a classic like international woman that you guys look up to? Give me like, what are are your international women? Mm. Start with Geraldine. Uh, (laughs) Alive or dead? Either. Pancho, Pancho Barnes. I know you love. Mm. She was an aviator, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. She was what? She was like a, a stunt pilot in in Hollywood, one of the first ones. And she, yeah, she liked um, and also ran a bar. So what fun! What a legend! Mm. Yeah. Oh, what about up. you? What about you, Fee? Patty Smith. Oh yeah, it's one of them. I don't do lists. And you're a real rock chick. <laughs> 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 Look, it's better than being called a stalwart. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'll go with that. Stalwart. What a oh, terrible so word. Uh, Princess Di. Brilliant. That's an obvious one. <laughs> I just did but it. It's... Someone to steal. Oh, I thought she might be your number <laughs> one. I haven't put any royals on here because I just think it would get too convoluted. So oh, I've actually so no did, royals at I all. I could do a separate list just for that. I've just kept it. I've kept it non-royal. Margaret Thatcher. No, no that was, actually. Oh, that was a joke. Sorry. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go from 10 to 1. So yep. 10 being least inspirational but still inspirational enough to get on the top 10. Yes. And then down to oil of number you. 1. <laughs> Thank oh. you. Um, okay, number 10, the Travago girl. Oh, no. Shruggy oh, McGee. No. I call her Shruggy, Shruggy McGee, McGee because every time she delivers a line, she always does a little... A little shoulder but that's stroke. that's her signature. Oh. Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> She's probably lovely. But here's the thing about your top tens, though. They can be whatever you you want. So oh, everyone's top tens and, but tell me might how, be different. How is Tarago Girl shaped who you are? Yeah. She started wearing a fringe and I'm thinking about getting a fringe oh, again. Okay. So that's my justification for that. And I... Will you go into the hairdresser and say, I'd like some Travago bangs, please? <laughs> yes, and I think they'd know exactly what I was talking about. I agree. And, yeah, I do watch a lot of daytime television and the Travago girl heavily appears on mm. daytime television. She's so pristine. Yeah. And also she's probably just making enough, like, lots of money just being the Travago girl. Like, she w- wouldn't have to do anything else. Mm. So She does do other things. I think she plays ukulele. Well, they should put in that in the ads. Maybe. Multi-talented. Yeah. Okay, number nine. She also can tap dance. Yes. Oh, you're looking her up now? Yeah. She's What's a, her real name? She's Does a, she play you? Do you want to know? Actually, yeah. no. no, no keep her, can no, I just, keep her as the Travago girl. Can I just please? I just need to. I know. I'm going to make her. I'm going to flesh her out. Okay. Musician, tap dancer, mime and puppeteer. Whoa. Uh, How come all we're seeing is the shrugging? You had me at mime and lost me at puppeteer. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> okay. Nine. This one's a classic, and I really don't need to explain it. Terry Irwin, oh. Oh. dead set legend. Yeah. Right. How she carries on. How she carries on. <laughs> no, carries on with. Oh. with, with no. Yeah. She carries no. on that. Word. No, I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, she car- she she's carried on. on staunchly. Yeah, she carried on. She continued Steve's legacy. Yeah. She's a wildlife warrior, and she's got another woman with a banging fringe as well. Bang and bangs. Banging fringe. She's rocking the long hair into her 50s. Love it. Number eight, the Octo Mum. Oh, okay. Oh. I haven't heard, yeah. from, <laughs> I haven't heard from him her for a while. No. They're probably 15 years old probably now. If Oh, I think you meant she might have had a fi- 15 kids by now. <laughs> she might have. Oh, yeah. <gasps> the Octo Mum, she might be a bitch. We don't know. I don't <laughs> care. She had eight kids at the one time. So everyone can... 
And just how, accept how it. Amazing or stupid? You be the judge. Bo- mm. You can be both. Well, true. Can't you? Yeah. Yeah. That's how and I also- travel through my own life. <laughs> <laughs> Are you the Octomum? <laughs> um, also, can I just point out that I made her number eight? You oh, did. Oh, well done. <laughs> Which is... Bravo. Sometimes I do need to explain my own jokes on here when I'm particularly proud of them. It's early. We haven't had enough coffee. <laughs> okay, number seven, um, the character Roz from Frasier, from the television show Frasier. Oh, Roz Which, is who's, good. Who's, who's, yeah. <laughs> I'm so Roz is not the English one. No, Roz is the one. The producer. And it's interesting that we're in a radio station because Frasier is... <laughs> set in a radio station and Roz is the producer. Yeah. So Roz is kind of like the um, the equivalent of Elizabeth, yes. who's your producer. Yes. Yeah. But Roz is like Frasier's friend and I just like how throughout all of the 11 seasons of Frasier, she... There was 11 seasons? There was 11 how did that happen? seasons and they're all, they're all on stand and you wow. can watch all of them, Fee. <laughs> Mike... I'm finding it hard to contain myself over here. I'm a Frasier super fan. Is BB Newworth in most of them? No, I don't like the episodes that she's in. Okay. Do you know? (laughs) I just don't like Frasier. Oh, mate. Do you know this one has watched, she'll have Fraser on the laptop in the kitchen and then Fraser on on the TV in the lounge room at the same time. But is is it about him or are you like an ensemble cast? Not about him. No, She's not he's got a great jawline. <clears throat> got a very solid jawline. Yes. It's not necessarily about I not don't so find much f- in the hairline. It's more. It's I find. I mean, it's outdated, like all '90s sitcoms are. I'm going to admit that. But also, it's got really good writing, and I really like his apartment. <laughs> Thank you for your synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number six. I'm going to whiz through the rest of them. And from the chase. Do you guys oh, watch The yes. Chase? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the one that I think they call her the headmistress. Yeah. Oh, and she comes yes. out. She's on the British Chase. She's also on the Australian Chase. She is the definition of an international woman. Yeah. Is she mm. the one you... that wears the suit? Yes. Yeah. Oh, and very stern. Very yes. stern. Oh, and nothing gets past Anne. Looks like um, Nothing gets past the, Anne. The trunchbull. Yes. Yeah, the trunchbull. Yeah. 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 But she also likes a bit of a joke. Joke around as well. She's oh, got yeah. a sense of humour. She's a bit cheeky. And then she chucks you in the chokey. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, all of the daughters from the Australian drama series McLeod's Daughters. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> all of them. I always wanted, when me and my siblings had to run a farm briefly and we, I wanted to be the Smiths. <laughs> The Smith's door. Smith's door. There's a whole other... But you ran a farm. Well, well, by a farm I mean seven acres with yeah. uh, you some you, peacocks on it and some You look wallabies. like one of the McLeod's daughters. Yes. You yes. have been on it. Mm. I wanted people to call You've us the Smith's. you got the aesthetic. Sons yeah. and daughters. Smith's, Smith's Smith sons and daughters. daughters. Yeah. Loved Fantastic. It. Okay, number four. <laughs> this one's a lesser known one but you might remember her and I really look up to her, Lisa Nowak. And she was that NASA astronaut that... She drove, um, I've got it down here, 950 miles from Houston to Orlando nonstop to confront a love rival. I remember this. That was her husband was having an affair with another astronaut. So she drove through the night. I don't know if she did. She wow, went to, that got I think dark. she kidnapped her. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was a dark story. Yeah, right. Probably shouldn't be this high she up on the wore, list. <laughs> she wore an astronaut nappy. Oh, right. <laughs> what? She wore an astronaut nappy so that she could drive through the night. And you know. <laughs> Why is she on she, your number three? 
Why? Because she's ki- got so to, many questions. Because to kidnap someone, Laura. <laughs> She'll do anything for love. She'll do anything no, for love. Has this been made into a movie? She even ch- yeah. pants for love. <laughs> wow. Do you know what she said when she got I'm there? I'm frightened. Do you know what she said when she got there? She oh, said, I've shat myself. <laughs> Can somebody get me another nappy? You know, she said, I've driven from Houston and I've got a problem. Oh, oh my. My Stop. nappy's full. <laughs> Oh, I can see why she oh. made the list. Oh. <laughs> wow. Okay, number three, Sally Robbins, the rower. You know the oh, rower? Wow. The one who laid down. 2004 Athens Olympics, she laid down. She yeah. got heavily criticised for doing something that all women should be allowed to do when they feel like it, have a lay down. Yes. And that's what I want to say on International Women's Day if you feel like having a lay down, have a lay down. Thank God you said and that. And why? And why not? Because <laughs> I'm tired. Why not? Exactly. <laughs> Later on today, have a lie down. Take a little photo, and I'm starting the hashtag hashtag lay down for Sally. <laughs> so post your photo. I've got a photo of me this morning in the kitchen laying, having a lay down. Right. Po- you can lay down anywhere. I'll lay be, down in honour of Sally. I'll be ten years too late. But <laughs> I think it- <laughs> so put it up on your socials. Lay down for Sally. Hashtag lay down for Sally. I'll be putting mine up on my Instagram stories <laughs> after this. Um, okay, number two, my neighbour Margaret from downstairs. She's a legend. Um, she, one time when someone was parked in my car space, she called the council she and they got her a tired. <laughs> I, well, she was close. She was angry. She knocked on their door. She like she tried to get them to move, oh. um, but they were in my car spot. And she, then she called the council. They got a ticket. So oh. I just think. That's the kind of woman that I want to be when mm-hmm. I'm older, the type that will call the council. You don't have to wait till you get older, PS. You can do it any time. That's true, actually. Yeah. Don't let age be a barrier. Oh, you, you're you going to make my list, Fee. You're so inspiring. <laughs> Am I number one? No, Meryl's number one. Oh, Meryl. How could she not be? Meryl do you follow Street. the Meryl uh, account where she pops up in yes. food? Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why is Meryl number one? I know Why we have to go isn't to the news, she number but... one? She's the best. Meryl Streep. Around, nothing ever gonna so keep it down. down. <laughs> Thanks Laura for coming Dunneman. in, Laura. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.